know, there are some things in life that are so obvious that they're actually really hard to define. And one of those things is a parent's love for their child. I know the family that I grew up in, we weren't a very affectionate family. You didn't hear parents, children say, I love you all the time. We didn't sort of have hugs and kisses and cuddles and that sort of thing. But we knew we were loved. Mum and dad never really said it, but we knew. And there was never a time that we doubted we were loved. And I knew that there were some friends that I had at school, that that wasn't always the case. And again, it wasn't something that was ever spoken. You just kind of knew. Because there's some things that were so obvious that it's hard to kind of put into words. And we're going to be looking at one of those things today. Because just over a month ago, about six weeks ago, Gary came up to me after church and said, Peter, can you speak on prayer? Because we're, we're having a um, kind of a focus this year of the last Sunday of the month on, on prayer. And I said, yep, no worries. And when I sat down to prepare, I was like, oh, what am I going to say? Because it's one of those obvious things that you think you should know about. But when you sit down, you look at it and you go, oh, no, I'm not quite sure. Because as Christians, we're supposed to know how to pray. And then I thought, well, I'll, I'll do what every person does and, and jump online and Google it. So I got the online Bible up and, and I said, okay, find me every passage in the Bible that mentions prayer. And there was only 367 hits. By the way, there's 31,102 verses in the Bible and only 367 times prayer is mentioned. And I started flicking through some of those and I'm going, well, most of them had things like Abraham prayed, David prayed, Hannah prayed. And I'm thinking, okay, well, if you eliminate all of those, you're actually left with this tiny, tiny little bit of the Bible that actually talks about prayer. And I'm kind of thinking, man, this is really weird because prayer is one of those things that kind of as a Christian, it's, you're supposed to know what to do. It's, supposed, it's kind of like really obvious, but it's one of those things that's really hard to kind of put your hand on and explain. And I was even more dumbfounded when I started looking at where the first mention of prayer is you nearly get through halfway through Genesis before it pops up. It's actually in, in Genesis chapter 20 when um, you have the, the story of uh, Abraham and Abimelech and Abimelech's taken um, Abraham's wife and, and his, God, God has cursed him and he goes to, to Abraham and says, please pray for me so God can lift this curse from me. And I'm thinking, man, so many things have happened in that those first 20 verses of uh, first 20 chapters of Genesis. Um, and prayer isn't mentioned. You know, you have creation, you have Adam and Eve, you've, you've got the fall, you've, you've got the um, you've got Noah and the ark, you've you've got um, you know the, the calling of Abraham, you've got all of those things, and prayer is actually never mentioned. What is going on? See, as Christians, we are supposed to to know how to pray. It's one of those obvious things. 
And you know, it's not just a 21st century problem. It's not just a modern problem that we have. The disciples had exactly the same problem. Because it's actually recorded in Luke that they came to Jesus and they said, teach us how to pray. Because they didn't know either. They were like us and they knew they were supposed to do it. But it was like, what do we do? And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount teaches his disciples how to pray. So we're going to look at that passage today as our, as our launching point. So if you can turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And to give you a little bit of context, Jesus is probably teaching one of his most famous sermons that's recorded for us, Sermon on the Mount. He's just spent a whole chapter talking about the ethical standard of this new kingdom that he's inaugurating. Um, And then we we pick it up in verse 1, just to give a little bit of context. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, um, if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So he's just given this ethical standard of this is what it means to be in the kingdom of God. This is what it means to live out your faith. And that those acts of righteousness, that, that is how to live out the fact that you have been made righteous before Christ. How do you do that? And straight up, Jesus says, you know, you are not doing those things for the people around you. It's not for their benefit. It's for the Father's benefit. And then he talks about giving. And then we're going to jump down to verse 5 and we're going to pick it up there. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. When the disciples asked, Jesus, teach us to pray, the first thing He does is says, this is what prayer is not. Because sometimes when you're talking about something obvious, it's actually easier to talk about what it's not. And it's not about showing off. It's not about making you look spiritual, making you look good in front of everybody else. It's also not about trying to control God by repeating stuff endlessly over and over again, because maybe if I just do it enough, God will do what I want. So Jesus says the first thing, it's it's not about showing off. It's not about trying to control God. And he says, this is what it is. We pick up in verse 9. Then this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What's striking here is that Jesus did not teach. He did not say, look, this is what it is. Point one, point two, point three, this is what you do. He prayed. Because sometimes things are so obvious, you have to do it and kind of follow somebody else's steps in order to get it. Just like when you are learning woodwork or some of the trades, it's actually much better to actually go beside somebody and to learn from them step by step, copying them what they do until you kind of get the hang of it. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, copy me. And he prays. And as we look at that, we kind of get, start getting a sense of what's going on here. Let's go read it again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's an acknowledgement that we have a deep connection with the creator of the universe. He's our Father. He is somebody intimately connected to us. But he's not like our earthly fathers. He's in heaven. And his name is hallowed. Another name is, is holy, is set apart. He is not like us. He has not got the same frailties, the, the same limitations that we do. He is our father in heaven. So much more than our earthly fathers. Verse 10, your kingdom come, you will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we look around at the world around us, sometimes it seems a little crazy and a little out of control. And yet, we acknowledge the fact that God is in control. And ultimately, his will will be done and his kingdom here will be established. And nobody, nobody in this world can come up against him. Even though sometimes it feels that the world is a little bit crazy. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. Give us the things that we need. The acknowledgement that actually on our own we can't do it. We need to put food on the table to provide for our families. We need to have shelter. We need to have these things. And it is God who provides them. It is God that gives us employment. It's God that gives us all of these things. And it's an acknowledgement that we actually depend on him. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Not only the physical needs, but actually our spiritual need, the ultimate. Dealing with our sin and our standing before God. It is our Father who has dealt with that. He has forgiven our debts. But he requires that we also do the same and extend that same grace that's been extended to us. And verse 13, and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
Temptation can also be translated trials. Here we have our Father walking with us when things get tough and bringing us through the other side. And when you you spend some time kind of reflecting on this, you're starting to think, well, what was Jesus trying to teach here? Because this is a big point. What was Jesus' point here? It was that prayer is about acknowledging the deep truths of God. Most of that prayer is all about who God is and what he's done. It's also about acknowledging our present situation and our need before God. Because what prayer does is it takes our focus off our current situation and the world around us and it lifts our eyes to Jesus and and our Father so that we can put everything in perspective. See, when there's so much noise that goes around in everyday life, we get busy, we go to work, we have a social life, we get jobs done around the house, we wake up the next day, kind of the cycle repeats again. And it's so easy just to kind of just each day flow one into the next, into the next, and we kind of get wrapped up in this world. But what prayer does by acknowledging the deep truth of God but, and also our need, it refocuses and rebalances everything and it brings everything into alignment of what it should be. Somebody described prayer as walking in sync with God, seeing the world from his perspective. And it's the act of making that really conscious and really obvious. So that's, that's what prayer is. It's removing our focus on the world around us to the ultimate reality of where we stand in Christ. Now, this year, 2020, has been a little bit of a crazy year. It's probably going to be one of those years that all of us will remember. And I'm looking forward to when I'm old, really, really old, not just old like I am now, but really old, being able to tell stories to my grandchildren about 2020, just like my grandparents told me stories about the Great Depression. They lived through the Great Depression, and it it shaped who they were. My opa, when he pulled nails out of old bits of stuff that he was demolishing, he would take the nail and he would bang it straight and reuse it. I can still remember walking into his workshop And there was this tin of old rusty nails that he would just, like, he would go down there after dinner and he would just laboriously nail them them out to to, to be beautifully straight. And it must have taken him like five minutes a nail. I don't know how he had the patience. I I remember thinking he could have just easily walked down to the hardware store and, and grabbed a new packet of nails. And yet the Great Depression 
I guess, changed his outlook. It was one of those things that marked him out for the rest of his life. 2020 is going to be one of those years because of everything that's gone on. And you might have noticed that there's a whole lot more push and emphasis on mindfulness and meditation than there has ever been. I know at school, it's all through the stuff that's coming through from schools. You'll have teachers taking little sessions on mindfulness or meditation. And when you look at it, it goes, yeah, okay, I can see where they're coming from. Because mindfulness is all about being present in the moment, not worrying about everything else, but just kind of being centered and being uh, grounded and kind of just slowing down and taking stock and being at present in the moment. And you think, yeah, yeah, sounds good. And then meditation is, is again, a little bit similar. It's, it's slowing down and it's thinking deeply about stuff. And you, you may have heard these buzzwords kind of going around. What you probably don't realize is that your children, it's, it's happening at school. And, and them in the, you know, mindfulness and meditation in itself isn't a bad thing, but it kind of falls short. It's a poor reflection of prayer because it takes God out of the equation. Because what are you meditating on? What do you be mindful of? See, what prayer does is it focuses you on the deep truths of God. This is who he is. Your personal situation, an acknowledgement that you have a need in front of your father that only he can meet. And yes, mindfulness and meditation is the world's way of crying out and saying, we have a need, we need something, we know that there's something missing, especially in this crazy year of 2020. But in itself, it falls short because it's missing who, missing the central part of, of God. It's taking God out of the equation. Where prayer puts God right at the center. So how do we move beyond mindfulness and meditation? Well, we do what Jesus said, and we, we use his model to pray. And once you, you realize that what Jesus did was show his disciples how to pray, because he expected them, like, like an apprentice, to follow on behind and copy him and slowly learn by copying then when you look at Scripture, you go, hang on. The Bible actually does talk about prayer a lot. In fact, there is a whole book of the Bible that are collected prayers. And it's called Psalms. And we're going to look at one of those. So if you can turn to Psalm 86. Now, I could have turned to lots of them, but we, we've just chosen this one to look at today. And you have to ask yourself, why did God ask David and some other writers to write down their prayers? Why collect them together and then put them here for us? 
And it's so that we can have an apprenticeship in prayer. Because we learn best by copying somebody until we get the hang of it, and then we can kind of head off. So let's read it together. Psalm 86. Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I call on you day all day long. Bring joy to your servant, for you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And you can feel David's emotion there. You can feel him pouring out his need before God and saying, God, have mercy on me. Help me in this situation. And then then the tone changes. We pick it up in verse 5. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call on you. So he's gone from focusing and acknowledging his present need before God to saying, actually, this is who you are. And then it switches back. Verse 6. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. In the day of my trouble, I will call to you, for you will answer me. So back focused on his need. Because his heart is pulling. He's struggling. And then it switches back. Verse 8. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord, and they will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. And you can see what he's doing is he's wrestling between his own present situation and just pouring out his heart to God to then refocusing on who God is. There's two elements of prayer. Our present situation who God is. And it goes backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, all the way throughout the whole chapter. And it's there as a model for us to pray. Because oftentimes when we, if you're anything like me, when you sit down to pray, you know, the heart is there. You know kind of what you want to say, but the words just don't kind of come out. Because when we're feeling that emotion, it's hard to articulate what's going on. But we can use those models that have been given to us in, the, in, in Psalms and in other places as a blueprint to pray. See, the Bible doesn't teach us a lot about prayer. It shows us how to pray. And that's what those passages are there to be be put for us. They're there for us to pray through them, to, to learn from other people's examples. That is called liturgy. And it's something that we don't do a whole lot in the Brethren churches. I've kind of come from a Baptist Brethren background. I did go to Baptist church, then I kind of met Carol and married into the Brethren church. Um, And they're lovely people. 
I'm biased, but they're lovely people. Um, and one of the things that we, we don't do liturgy a whole lot. You know, we, we, our services are a little bit more freeform. When we went over to, to live in Doha for five years, there was no Brethren Church. So we joined the Anglican Church, and it was a very high Anglican Church. They did liturgy in a big way. You know, the priest would have the different colors depending on which time of the, the year it was. Um, there would be uh, a very set order of service. There would be things that the priest would say, the things the congregation would say. There, there would be, everything would kind of be sort of prescribed for you. There'd be prayers that would be written, uh, read out. Um, you would join in. And at first, it was really weird. You spent half the time going, do I stand up? Do I sit down? Do I stand? You know, it was just, it was just strange. Then after a while, it became very comforting. It helped me in my worship. Because what it was, I realized that I was walking in the footsteps of people that had come before me. I was being apprenticed in my worship and my prayer. I was being guided and modeled and shown things that I wouldn't have discovered on my own. See, all the way through church history, that's the way most Christians have learned how to pray, how to worship by copying what other people have done. And through the act of copying them, their heart resonates and they learn and grow and develop to the point where they can then do it themselves. That's exactly what Jesus was doing when he said, and this is how you should pray, our Father who art in heaven and all the way through. That's exactly the reason we have the Psalms and some other prayers throughout the Bible. Because when you're not quite sure the words to say, as you read those and you pray through them, you go, that's exactly how I feel. I, at home, I have a, a little book that has, says 31 days of prayer. And someone's gone through Bible passages and kind of stitched Bible passages together as prayers. And when I'm struggling to pray, I pick that up and I work through it. And what I find is that reading those Bible passages in a prayer-like way helps me to, to refocus on the deep truths of God and my own situation and need of him. And I find my heart beating at the same as those scriptures. And I'm following in the footsteps of somebody else learning how to pray. And not only do we have the scriptures, not only do we have 
praised by other people. We are so lucky in this modern age to have an amazing collection of wonderful Christian worship songs. And you can, you can, when you strip away the music, what a Christian song is, like the, the really good worship songs, what they are are prayers. And sometimes they express the, the deep longing of your heart and, and, and help you refocus on who God is. When you're struggling to, to figure out the words to say, because sometimes, sometimes it's just so hard to get those words out, and yet a song captures it beautifully. So there are different things that help different people. But God has given them for us to help us to pray. So instead of narrowing down what prayer is, we need to look at prayer as focusing on the deep truths of God, acknowledging our own situation and need of Him. Because prayer is about taking our eyes off the chaos and the noise of the world around us and focusing on Him. And very soon, we are going to come and have actually a piece of liturgy, a tradition that we do at this church that is actually, in, in, in a sense, an ultimate expression of prayer. Because what we have here before us is the bread and the cup, a physical symbol of what Jesus has done for us, an acknowledgement of the deep truths that we have a God who is loving and just, who needed to come to become like one of us, to pay our price. And we have that ultimate need of accepting that. So as we build up to, I guess, remembrance there in the Lord's Supper, let's do that with an attitude of prayer. Amen. Amen.